We're now up to Mark 4, and we've been saying that the Gospel of Mark is the, the transcript of Mark's preaching of, of the Gospel. And we've been saying that we are focused in very much on Jesus. And when we talked about Mark 3, I made the point that it's, it's as if Mark is a cameraman, and sometimes he hits the zoom button, and he zooms right in very closely on Jesus, on his face, upon his hands, upon his body language. And just going back to Mark 3, um, verse 5, when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he said, he spoke to the man. So then we made the point that his anger was, mi- was mixed with a grief for the mindset which he knew these hard men had. And so he looks round about upon them with anger, and yet that anger is mixed with grief. Just half a sentence uh, really paints such an exquisite visual picture, as it were, of Jesus. Got it again at the end of Mark 3, verse 34. He looked round about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, and again we are to imagine him beckoning with his hand, or motioning with his hand, Behold my mother and my brethren. And then here in chapter 4, verse 1, there's this great multitude, and so he gets into a ship, and he sat in the sea. Well, he didn't sit in the sea, he sat in a boat that was in the sea. And it was only apparent, it would have only seemed that he was sitting in the sea if you were looking on from a very great distance, far away that you would have seen this multitude on the, on the shore and it looks like a man sitting in the sea well he's actually sitting on a, on a small boat and so it's as if the camera now is zoomed right out and we, we see from, a, from a, a bird's eye really from a, from a distance and incidentally you notice how inspiration at times records things how they appear to, to men not necessarily how they are he sat in the sea well he didn't sit in the sea he sat in a boat that was in the sea but from a distance that's what it looked like and when you come to the issue of demons and various other things which uh, appear to be scientifically incorrect in the Bible that's how I understand it but God so thirsts for relationship with people that he is prepared to write his word and express his word in such a way that those who are looking from a distance uh, that he adopts let's say the perspective uh, of those who are looking from a distance with all the uh, sort of incorrect vision that that might imply at times <clears throat> okay so there's all these people and he basically tells them the parable of the sower which says that out of all you people who are hearing my word only a minority of you are going to be the good ground now it's quite clear that we must be able to alter the type of ground which we are. The sower sowing the word in verse 14, this is Jesus sitting there in the, in the, in the ship speaking God's word to the people, sowing, as it were, ideas in their mind. But all those people are going to respond in different ways. But there can't be some sort of determinism whereby we think, well, yeah, okay, I'm just stony ground, I've got so many other things in my life, they come into my life, or, um, yeah, there's plenty of thorns growing up in my life, I've got lots of cares of this world, unfortunately that's just how I am, and yep, so therefore God's word is not going to prosper in me. 
the whole point of the parable of the sower, I think at the end of it really, we are left with the obvious question, well how can I change the type of ground that I am? And how he continues to talk uh, from verse 20 onwards, all these things that he's talking about are, I think, answering that question. Now, of course, the the good ground, before we we come to that, the, the good ground still varies in its quality. It can bring forth fruit, some 30, some 60, and some 100 fold. And incidentally, the 100 fold uh, increase is absolutely you know, unheard of. And yet, I think Jesus was talking there about himself. And just as some homework, you might like to have a think about the parables and the teaching of Jesus and consider how often he is, in fact, exhorting himself. And that is something to always be borne in mind when we are teaching others or just sharing God's word with others, that this applies to me. The good news of the kingdom, that is good news for me. Believe, be baptized, and you shall be saved. I have believed, I have been baptized, so I shall be saved. Just just keep that in mind. Uh, in, in all your dealing with God's word, with, uh, with other people. But the fact is, some people will make more of God's word than others. You can be in the good ground category and still only bring forth 30-fold, whereas someone else brings forth 60. Now, I think that uh, that's one of the most difficult things in ecclesial life, in church life, for us to cope with. That we look around and we see that it's quite clear that God's truth means more to some than it does to others. That for some it seems it's a question of going to church, uh, and yes, reading the Bible now and again, and uh, yes, praying for meals and stuff, but it just seems that they're so caught up with all sorts of other things. And others, it seems to mean so much more. And that is very often the cause of difficulty. That particularly those who consider themselves to be uh, producing more fruit, as it were, can look on others who produce less fruit and think, well, they're not up up to the grade. And of course we shouldn't be thinking like that at all because we should be so aware of our own failures and our own weakness of response that looking at the other guy shouldn't even come into it. But I'm afraid because we're human, it it does. Um, And it's no bad thing to just remember that. That one star does differ from another star in glory. Some will have more cities to rule over than others in in the other parable. Now, of course, we shouldn't ever think, well, I, of course, am uh, am the 60-fold or the 100-fold, and, well, I suppose I better be patient with her because she's just 30-fold material. Not at all. If we're starting to think like that, we've missed the whole point of being convicted of human sin and beating on our breast, not even wanting to lift our eyes to heaven, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. Now, against that, we also have to, I think, be pragmatic Uh, and recognize that as we go through our lives in relation and in connection with other believers that it just simply is a fact that for some it will mean more than others but that does not mean they will not be saved it's like everyone gets a penny a day in the other parable, salvation but some people work harder and longer and more productively than others and that's just how it is that's in the structure of God's final purpose uh, with us Now there is an element of unreality in all the parables. 
And that element of unreality, you know, these are very homely stories that they could relate to, and yet there was always something there, or various things, that were unreal. And the unreal elements are like a signpost, which is pointing us to what really uh, the point of the story is. One element of unreality here is, what's the matter with this sower? Why is he throwing this good seed out onto these types of ground where he knows it's not going to really take? Why does he do this? You could even rename the parable uh, the parable of the fanatic sower. And, of course, the sower is Jesus. Uh, but in the wider sense, we also are sowing God's word. And I think the, the point is, just get the word out there. The whole idea of trying to judge and prejudge and guess what might be better ground and uh, what's stony ground and what's just the pathway, the point is, don't even go there. Just get that word out there. Because people can change what type of ground they are. The other element of unreality is the idea that one seed that is sown could bring forth such a huge amount. That thirty-fold increase from one seed sown is almost unheard of, and sixty and one hundred-fold uh, uh, response for, from one seed is, uh, is, a, is just to the point of absurdity. That's just not what suddenly... Uh, Farmers farming in, uh, in Palestine in a fairly hot climate um, with not very good soil <coughs> generally, um, that, that's just unheard of. There's something weird there, that one, one seed in the right ground could bring forth so much. But that element of unreality is to be connected with another element of unreality in verse 31, which I see as a, a continuation in the explanation of this parable <clears throat> that the, the gospel of the kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed which when it's sown in the earth is <clears throat> less than all the seeds that are in the earth but then this grain of mustard seed becomes huge and it becomes bigger than all the other plants and it shoots out great branches so that the fowls of the air come and lodge under the shadow of it <clears throat> now the mustard Seed does not grow into a great big tree in some of the other uh, versions uh, of the parable in the other Gospels. It talks about this grain of mustard seed becoming a big tree. Well, it's not really a mustard tree. It's a mustard bush. And yes, it can be quite a big bush, but it's not a tree so that uh, fowls of the air, and the idea is wild uh, birds of prey, like big birds, come and nest in it. They only come and nest in, in big, tall trees. So there's an element of unreality here, that a tiny seed becomes a huge tree, when it's really only a bush, a scraggy kind of bush. That's what a mustard bush is, a mustard tree, if you wish. So there's again an element of unreality, and the point is that from tiny beginnings in God's word, a huge change can happen. Now, so it really is that a guy walking down a street who, by chance, picks up a, a leaflet, a guy sitting there reading black print on white paper in the New Testament, um, can by that be changed. That the, the difference between who we are now and who we shall eternally be 
is absolutely huge. And the difference is, or the, uh, the method or the, the, the reason why that change happens, Jesus is saying, is the word of God. But what do we mean by the word of God? We tend to assume that it is this Bible that we're holding in our hands, from Genesis to Revelation, including the Chronicles genealogies. And yet, we have to keep on reminding ourselves that we are living in the age of literacy, and the vast majority of those who will be in God's kingdom were illiterate people. They were not able to read the entire Bible. So then what is this word which they were responding to? and which can have this huge transforming effect. Well, Jesus uh, describes it really in verse 30 as the kingdom of God, and I think uh, we have to read in an ellipsis uh, for that, uh, the word of the kingdom, the basic gospel. When he says in verse 14, the sower sows the word, well, he's in the first instance explaining what's going on as he sits in the ship speaking God's word of the gospel of the kingdom to the people listening. So the word that he was sowing was not Genesis to Revelation included in the Chronicles genealogies, it was the word of the kingdom. So then the very basic elements of the gospel, which all those illiterate people down the generations believed and understood, confessed faith in, were baptized into, and continued to believe and be transformed by, that basic message of the gospel has got huge power of transformation. And the fact that we have the whole Bible in a convenient form and that we are literate and we can read it and not only read it but fiddle around with the meaning and interpretation, trying to work out what this Greek word means and what that idiom and metaphor might mean, we, I mean, that's quite right that we should do that in our generation, but the danger of it is that you can't see the wood for the trees. You can't see the basic simple fact that the Lord Jesus died for me as a sinner and rose again, and I can be baptized into him, identify with him. His life, as it is in the Gospels, is to be my life, and he will come again and resurrect me, and I shall live forever and ever and ever in his kingdom. Now, the implications of that are just absolutely huge. So then, he, he leaves us at the end of the parable of the sower with this uh, challenge, really, that huge transformation is possible. Huge fruitfulness is possible in this life and in that which is to come. All as a result of us being the type of ground that responds to his word. Now, how can we be the good ground? Well, in one sense, you could say, verse 19, don't let the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things choke the word so that it becomes unfruitful. And notice, of course, it's the cares of this world. If your focus is not on this world but on that world which is to come in God's kingdom, then, of course, we will not... Um, be so bothered about all the cares of this world but it's it is uh, of course a very powerful thing that so many people will not be in God's kingdom despite the fact they heard the gospel uh, because they were worried about um, getting that new flat screen large uh, TV for the bedroom and uh, they saved for it and they bought it and then it didn't work and uh, the guarantee was duff and uh, so therefore that was all wasted um, cares of this world what uh, 
uh, am I going to do to get my kids through university? I don't have any savings plan. I don't have insurance for that. What am I going to do? You know, all these kind of cares, even quite petty things. The gutter is broken. The cat has just puked on the carpet. You know, all these things need attention, and that's, <clears throat> that's part of living in this world. But those things adopt such a huge status in human minds that God's word becomes unimportant. <clears throat> the time to read God's word, and particularly the time to meditate upon it, just goes out the window. And that is bizarre. But standing before the judgment seat of Christ, there would be people who basically are not evil people, but will simply not be in his kingdom because of things like a broken gutter, or a cat that puked on the carpet, or a kid that uh, you want to get through university somehow. You know? And it will all seem so bizarre, so little, so small, so tragically petty and insignificant. So then, we want to be the good ground. And as I say, from verse 21, uh, well, really down to 34, you've got the Lord Jesus, I think, explaining how we can be that good ground. Now, verse 21 and 22 might appear out of context. Why is that thrown in here, in the midst of parables about sowing and about seed and about responding to God's word? That uh, parable there, 21... Uh, is a candle brought to be put under a bucket or under a bed and not to be set on a candlestick? Like, what's the relevance of that to God's word? Because, as I say, it's slotted in there between the parable of the sower and then him talking about, verse 26, a man casting seed into the ground and it sleeps. Uh, he sleeps uh, and the seed uh, springs and grows up and then it's harvested um, and then verse 31 the grain of mustard seed parable why in the midst of all these sowing parables is there the story about the candle well I think it goes like this the candle that is brought to be put, uh, to be put on a candlestick that's us you are the light of the world Jesus said and he spoke of course in a, in a time when there was no electricity and the light was, uh, was a candle that was set on a candlestick and that's you, he says elsewhere so we are the oil lamp or candle and we're burning the oil of God's word but if we are put under a bucket or under a bed, the light will go out if we don't share openly the things that we believe in God's word to others if we act in this world like we're one of them then the light will go out so it's not that you must preach or else you will not be saved I'm not trying to be that primitive and simplistic what I'm saying is that if our light if our response to God's word is not open and public and we are secret Christians if we are hidden then the light will go out so one way to be good ground one way to keep God's word burning within us is to be public and open and upfront about our hope and our understanding of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. And the connection between me and his word is going to have to be public and open in front of everybody. And he says in verse 22, well look, one day everything is going to be made manifest. 
So there's no point in hypocrisy. He uses the same teaching when he's talking about hypocrisy. What's the point to be hypocritical? What's the point to be secret believers? Because it's all going to come out in the open forever and ever at the last day. So what is the point in this tiny little time frame in which we live in this mortal life in being hypocritical or pretending that we are not believers? If you do that, your light will go out. So context of the, the sowing parables, if you want to be the good ground, then be open about your faith and your commitment. And so often it has been uh, said that, you know, now is not the time for, for preaching, we've got to sort out our internal problems, all this kind of stuff. That is another form of putting the, the light under a bucket. Because if you are not involved in, in active, outgoing uh, witnessing of the light of Jesus, if you are not identifying yourself with him as the light of the world, you know, I am the light of the world, you are the light of the world. If we're not identifying ourselves openly and publicly with him, yeah, people say, oh, but what are you bringing people into? Oh, I don't want to preach. No, we're not publicity agents for an organization, for a church, for a denomination. We are the light of this world in that we are connected with the Lord Jesus. And if for whatever reason we make, and it's all just sophistry, uh, any excuse that I am not going to be public about my faith, really this is going to be the consequence, that the light goes out, we become the bad ground. And so he says, 24, take heed what you hear. In the parallel in Luke 8, 18, he says, take heed how you hear. Because I suppose how you hear is in a sense what you hear. Because with what measure you measure, it will be measured to you. And to you that hear shall more be given. So he seems to be saying that to become good ground, the, the key thing is our attitude to God's word. That is what is so crucial. How we listen. How we hear. That's what's so important. And so... According to how we view God's word, so our attitude to it, I think, will be determined. So often we tend to think that it's all about interpretation, that I read it this way and you read it that way. And yes, there is an element of interpretation, I accept that. Uh, but I think very often it comes down to what is your attitude to God's word? And how seriously are you going to read that black print on white paper and say, this may not be what I would like to believe. This is not how I would prefer to live, but I will. Because this is what God says. And what he says I will do. It's as simple as that. So often I have found myself in discussion with people who are insistent that as Christians we should keep the law of Moses today. And uh, I have quoted to them repeatedly some words from Paul where I think really it, it, you, you can't say that we must keep the law of Moses today as a Christian and believe what Paul says and two or three times I've had extended discussions with people who I was very fond of, there's no personal animosity there and they, each of them said to me at the end, basically look Duncan, that was just Paul in, and the whole problem that there was was our difference in approach to God's word in what we accepted uh, God's word to be because in the end they had their ideas set in stone 
and Paul was just Paul and you know start talking to them about an inspired Bible well yeah yeah but Paul is just Paul and I choose to believe what I want to believe about needing to keep the law of Moses for salvation end of story take heed how you hear what you hear it is our attitude to God's word Jesus seems to be saying which is so crucial that of course is what determines whether we are the good ground and so I think that uh, we need to think about that that of course you you can say that what I'm saying is an appeal to fundamentalism and if you know me I I am too eclectic a person to be uh, what would pass as a fundamentalist in uh, in this world uh, at the moment so let's just forget that term but all the same what it comes down to is what is the final authority and the final authority has to be the word of the Lord Jesus if we say now nah, the final authority for me is Jesus not his word well what, what do you know about Jesus and how do you know anything about Jesus you know it only because of his word so then that is uh, that's the the question we must ask when we were baptized when we first heard the word we concretely did something you went and got baptized you got yourself wet with immersion in water because that's what you understood the Bible to teach and yet we've got to have that attitude all the way through our lives and you need to ask yourself as I need to ask myself when was the last time that you read something in the Bible and thought oh I see and you actually went and did something made a concrete change or simply did something because of what you had read so going on then um, just quickly uh, 29 I would just like to comment when the fruit is brought forth immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come that could be an indication that the final coming of Christ is dependent to some degree not only on number of baptisms uh, being performed worldwide but on the amount of spiritual fruit that is brought forth by the, the body of believers as a whole as they have been over time historically and as they are on the face of the earth at the moment of Christ's coming so then it is spiritual maturity in the body of believers that is in one sense going to be the, the deciding factor of when the Lord returns well I say deciding factor it is one, uh, it is one element in an algorithm because that day is hastened and if it wasn't hastened even the elect would turn away etc uh, etc et so it's just one, uh, one element there but the point is it's, it's an appeal to spirituality I'd like to conclude with a reflection on verse 38 that Jesus was in the back part of the ship and there was a huge storm and I mean this wasn't like an ocean liner this was a little open boat and he's asleep on a pillow and they wake him and say master don't you care that we perish of course he cared that they perished that's why he gave his life that whoever believed in him should not perish but should have eternal life and I think there's a connection there with Jesus having said or or rather John's commentary being that uh, Jesus died so that whoever believes in him should not perish I think John is recognizing there how wrong we were to think that Jesus didn't really care about our perishing of course he did 
But my question is, what was Jesus doing asleep? Can you really be asleep with water pouring over you when you are in a little open boat in a huge storm that is threatening to, to kill you? Can you really be asleep? And I wondered if he wasn't asleep. If he was just showing himself to be asleep, as we started off by saying that Jesus is recorded as sitting in the sea. Well, he didn't sit in the sea. He sat in a boat in the sea. That was just how it appeared. And so it seems that that's how he uh, appeared and showed himself to be. And Jesus does this in your life, in mine, and in the lives of people in the Gospels, that he brings us to the point of realization of what we really want. It's like he says to the blind man, what would you like me to do for you? Like, isn't it obvious, Jesus? The guy wants to be healed. He wants to see. But Jesus asked him the question, not because he didn't know, but because he wanted to focus that man upon his need. Another example. There they are in another uh, storm on the lake, and Jesus is walking on the water. And he makes out that he's going to go past them. They're like, Jesus, don't walk past us. Man, you're going to walk past us. We're about to die. Please help us. Don't walk past us. Why did he make out he was going to walk past them? Because he wanted to focus them upon their need for him. On the road to Emmaus, he made as if he was going to go further. Oh no, don't go further. Come and abide with us. Why did he make out he was going to go further? Because he wanted to pique their desire for him. And why is it that life at times seems so cruel? That life sometimes just seems that God has been real hard on us and the Lord is being hard on us. And why is life so complicated? Let's put it that way. And I think one of the reasons is that he wants us, he's working in our lives, to focus us upon him. That he he, he, not our church, not our theology, but him as a person. He is the one that we need desperately. He's trying to make us realize our desperation, our personal desperation, and our need for him so that he can come and in his fullness fulfill that need.